coming up on this episode of the Unusable Podcast. Doug Collins. Deceptive design. Frightening noises in the night. Ooh. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Unusable Podcast, where we discuss the importance of user experience in technology and the world around us, and talk about great design that just works, or moan about it when it doesn't. Hello, Andrew. Hello, David. What an exciting episode today. Really? Tell me all about it. Well, well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but uh, we've done an interview for the first time ever, haven't we? Or I did, yeah. I should say. I did an interview. Anyway, introductions. Who are you? So, uh, my name is David Ball. I'm a front-end web and app developer. My name is Andrew Waite, and I run a software product. Great stuff. Oh, Andy, I've got an amazing, uh, a very frustrating, bad usability nightmare to tell you about. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait until after your interview, and as a little, it's a little tease for later. Keep the listeners hanging on till the end of the podcast. Okay. <laughs> well, b- before that, I spoke to the very lovely, the very wonderful Doug Collins recently, and recorded an interview with him. He's got a new book coming out. So I had a quick chat to him about the book, about uh, sort of how to get started in UX, uh, tons of other stuff. Found out a lot about him. It was very interesting. If you are interested in getting hold of a copy of Doug's book, you can go to denveruxer.com forward slash unusable, where you'll find a special offer just for unusable podcast listeners. We'll leave the link in the show notes. But yeah, we should probably just go straight in and, and play the interview. Okay, let's have a listen. Welcome, Doug Collins. Hopefully most of our audience know who you are, but in case they don't, do you want to do a quick introduction of yourself? Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so I am currently the director of user experience and user interface design for ALC Schools, which is a small company that's a bit like Uber, but focuses on transportation for school districts rather than for sort of the public in general. Um, just started there. I am brand new. Uh, started back in December. Um, I've kind of come up through a, a number of different places. I came up through Western Union, uh, through uh, E-Trade, company before that called uh, Trust Company of America, Nordstrom, uh, Four Winds Interactive, where I was a contractor there for a few years uh, working on digital sinus projects. Uh, but yeah, I've been doing UX and, and UI work for about 12 years um, and really enjoy uh, interacting with the community in any way that I can. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of times that's when I can get on podcasts like this, particularly this one, which has been my favorite for a long time. I'm very excited to be here. Um, or uh, also on Twitter, I'm also very active over there. Uh, you can find me just about anywhere on social media uh, at Doug Collins UX. Cool. Uh, well, we're very, very happy to have you on. Let's have a little chat about the book that you've just written, right? You've just written a book. Yes, I have. I have. Yeah, and, and I appreciate uh, <laughs> appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, so the book I wrote, the UX Design Field Book. Um, it's uh, essentially a quick reference guide to everything about user experience design. Uh, really excited to have it out. Just came out a couple of weeks ago, so it's been fun to to launch it and get it out into the world. Yeah, so um, I've been reading it. I've been reading it. I bought a copy. Here's my actual copy. I'm so honored. <laughs> well, I, I'm honored <laughs> because uh, I genuinely uh, wasn't expecting when I turned to, I think it's page 80, 85 that we got a mention, which genuinely delighted delighted me and David when we... Uh, we read it, so that was amazing. There's no way. There's no way I could have left you off the list of podcasts that that I recommend in there. So I've got a list of of different reading resources and 
and audio resources that I, I have in there. And, and you you all were the first ones that came to mind for me. So definitely wasn't going to leave you off. Well, we're definitely flattered on that on that front. Very pleased that we made made the cut. I mean, I think that's the best <laughs> section of the book, to be honest. It has to be the best section. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I thought it was particularly good. It, it's like a really great broad overview of, of UX. And for me personally, I think it's great for two types of people. So those just getting into UX as a career, I think it's a, a fantastic overview of, you know, the, the, the general facets of essentially of, of being a UXer, right? Um, but, but the other type of person is someone more like myself. So I consider myself a bit of a, a pretender when it comes to UX. So I'm someone who's, oh. who's got a, a development background. Um, I've got pockets of knowledge in specific areas, but for me personally, the book helped me get a, a really great broad overview and it filled in some of the gaps in my knowledge. So I think it's great for those kinds of people as well, because there's so many people, there must be so many people out there, developers and, um, you know, designers and so on, who've, who've touched on UX in their career and they have these pockets of knowledge, but, you know, maybe they want to explore it a bit more fully and understand, get, get a more complete picture. And I think it's it's a really great book for for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's kind of what the the genesis of this was. It started out as initially a, a set of exercises that we were putting together as uh, uh, something we were doing for my company at uh, Khaki, where essentially we wanted to put together a sort of a broad overview of the UX design process uh, for people that weren't involved in the UX design process, for people that didn't uh, have good knowledge, have good awareness of it. Um, our product project managers are, I'm trying to think of a way to name these people that would make sense to you, but they were essentially stakeholders. <laughs> they were yeah. ex-military guys that were now involved with, with giving us information about the projects so, products so that we could help design them. Yeah. And uh, so it started out as that, and I think it was about uh, like three to 5,000 words. And I worked on it with some great people, um, uh, some wonderful people, Chris Linhart, uh, Burke Hernandez. Uh, Deanna Rommel, uh, Mike Vaughn, were, uh, and, and Jason Ogle, who runs the User Defenders podcast, um, yep. were, were all on my team helping to contribute to that. Um, and, uh, you know, it was about 5,000 words when we first wrote it, and uh, I decided it was time to expand it out and ended up, I think, about 23,000 words. Um, so completely rewrote what we had. Um, but that was sort of the basis was was for that use case. And then the other thing was, you know, I've been in UX design for 12 years, but I am entirely self-taught. And I was thinking about what would I wanted to, what would I have wanted to know 12 years ago when I was starting out uh, learning UX literally in the back of my 1998 Ford Escort, which is a tiny car. Uh, <laughs> so I wanted to think about that. And then, then also, you know, there's also, I think, another facet of it that uh, even the most experienced UX professionals look up the most basic things on a daily basis. We can't remember the name of a term or we can't remember uh, what's what's this particular bias called or, or what what am I trying to think about in this process? It's not something I'm too familiar with. So what am I, I, I need to refresh my memory on that. We're all looking that up. I still do that on a daily basis. So it's nice for me to even go back to the work that I've done and have that refresher there to say, you know, these are, you know, the, the pieces, the steps, the sort of general overview so I can kind of get my own thoughts in order, which is a great... Uh, a, a great use, I think, for everybody that's that's been in the field for a long time as well, too. So, certainly a lot of uh, a lot of different use cases for it, and and the feedback so far has been generally positive. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's great. I can see myself going back to it a lot, like you just mentioned, and I can see myself, particularly the glossary at the back, using that all the time. <laughs> I can see myself going back to that a lot. It's a great 
kind of starter guide for a budding UXer. But and you mentioned that you know this is what you'd have wanted to know you know twelve years ago when you started. But you know right. what what other advice would you give to someone you know Doug twelve years ago? What else? <laughs> what other advice? Someone starting out, you know, looking for their first job. What other advice would you um, would you give to them? The the first and foremost thing I, I always say is get practical experience get your hands on a project any project as as quick as you can and and not i don't mean redesigning a big corporate website like uh, airbnb or nike or whatever i i mean doing actual ux work that isn't limited to just visual design work you need to be doing the research you need to be doing the information architecture you need to be thinking about accessibility and ethical design and none of that comes from working on a project without stakeholders. Um, so, so get involved if you can. And even if it's just something that you're designing for yourself, uh, maybe you're working with uh, another up-and-coming developer um, that, that you're friends with or somebody that you might know that might join with you on a project, or even sometimes just nonprofit work, uh, charities, uh, organizations can be a great source of, of places where you can get some, some hands-on work, working with stakeholders, designing an actual product so that you have something to show that says, I know what I'm doing. I've proven that my work can be helpful, can be effective, and will work for a future employer. Because first and foremost, that's what employers want to know is, can you actually do the work? There are a lot of yeah. people out there that know buzzwords. There are a lot of people out there that know um, you know, how to sort of speak the language. But then when you put them in front of a project, they can't deliver on that project because they haven't had the experience yet to do that. So I, I yeah. want to know, can you do the works? So that's, I think, first and foremost is is just get your hands in front of a, a project and, and work as hard as you can on it and expand your your thought process outside of the visual design realm. We think so much about the work that we do as UXers sort of boiling down to a visual output, but that's not always the case. And a lot of the work that we do from a UX perspective isn't visual design. Uh, so you need to push past those boundaries a little bit. And I think for people that are just beginning in that world, um, those are, are kind of the, the two pieces I, I really say is, is get those, get that experience and, and push past those visual boundaries that you've been kind of working within. Okay. I think that's, I think that is really great advice. Sound advice for someone just starting out in UX. There's a number of conventions that I feel like we've, we've settled on. So just as a off the top of my head example, like the location of a hamburger menu and how that menu would operate. Um, mm -hmm. So if you do something different to that, would you say that you're being a, a, a maverick is there a, or are you just being a thoughtless jerk? And how, how, can, how can you innovate and do something interesting without subverting what people's expectations are? Yeah, I think it's Jacob's law. I don't know. This is one of the reasons why I have the glossary in the back of the book is because I never, <laughs> never remember all these laws. But I think it's Jacob's law that says people spend most of their time on websites that aren't yours. So they want mm -hmm. your site to work like the sites they already know. And there are some patterns out there that are established that we know work well for our users because they've been established for so long, because they're so universal. It's it's not a ton of those, but there are a handful of those. That doesn't mean that you can't break those patterns, but it means that you have to have a good reason to break those patterns. Um, and you need to have data that will back you up and say, not only is breaking these patterns plausible, something that can be done, uh, but something that is beneficial either to your user base or, you know, because we are all generally employed working for companies, the business that's employing us, right? 
Um, hopefully yeah. you, you can find something that's beneficial to both, or at least doesn't hurt one or the other and benefits the other, right? If you're hurting one or the other, then you're probably not going to come up with something that's very good. <laughs> um, but that's yeah. where yeah. doing the usability testing and knowing how to do usability testing is so important, right? You can come with the data and say, okay, I ran an A-B test on this and our conversion rate over here is 20% higher. Our conversion rate um, you know, when we make this change is, is drastically increased or, um, you know, the number of return users we, we get when we use this is, you know, however much percentage higher, but you want to have that data driven background to say that we're moving the needle in a positive direction. So you need to have the usability testing background. You need to be able to understand the metrics and you also need to success, set success metrics with your business partners to say, you know, what are we trying to do? If we're breaking this pattern, what's our goal, right? Why are we doing this? Are we trying to, um, increase the number of signups? Are we decreasing abandonment rate? What's our goal? What's the number that we're trying to move? Ideally, you have metrics already set up to measure that number. Um, that's not yeah. always the case, but ideally. I've been there, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, that's no fun when you're when you're there and you go, hey, what are we measuring? And they go, mm, not much. Yeah, what's, yeah. What, yeah, what's the baseline? No idea. No, yeah, idea. no idea. Yeah, and that's and that's uh, yeah. that's tricky for a lot of people. You know, a lot of the companies that I've gone to that are new to UX work don't have those measurements set up. They don't have the metrics set up. And even a few places I've worked, like when I worked at uh, Khaki, it was a defense and intelligence uh, software company, essentially, um, where you had systems that they did not want to have metrics because people did not want to be tracked in what they were doing in those systems. Um, so mm -hmm. it ended up being, a, okay, well, how are we going to measure this? So sometimes you have to be creative <laughs> with those success <laughs> metrics or what, or what needle you're trying to move, right, and, and the ways that you measure those. But, but you need to have those established, right? And that, that's an important part of of violating, I shouldn't say violating, of changing those patterns. Violating yeah. sounds like we're doing yeah. something terrible to them, and I don't think that's the goal there. So. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not the goal. I was just the thought process was just around, um, you know, is do, do these patterns that have now become very established do they do they limit innovation and do they do they stifle creativity? Was the um, was the was the broad question? Well, yeah, I. I... <sighs> To a degree, maybe, but to me, I, I see it as a way to eliminate those pieces that I don't need to think about, eliminate those problems that have already been solved, and focus my time and attention on the pieces that are unique to my use case, that are unique to the design that I'm creating. So yeah. the fewer problems I have to solve from scratch on a, on a design, the better off I am, right? And ideally... You, you get some combination of Jacob's Law and UX research um, going on at some point where a lot of the problems you're overcoming as a company are ones that have either been addressed by other people and are already kind of solved problems, or you have some research to say, where should we start to to approach this problem from? What, what sort of knowledge do we already have as a, as a unit, as an organization that we can draw from that's going to help us answer those questions? So I don't mm -hmm. think it I don't think it stifles creativity. I think it just focuses us on on our work and what we need to do. Um but again, like I said, you can change those patterns as long as you have a good reason to do them. No, I think that's uh, you make a good point. I think um we're we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? There's 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 no reason to recreate things that um that are established. Just like in a business how you wouldn't I don't know, make your own CRM or something, you would you would buy in a CRM because it's a solved problem. It's not differentiating your business. You would right. go with a, you know a a solution in the same way, you know, if there's a if there's a good pattern out there that people are going to understand, 
you don't need to reinvent it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, spending time to do things like competitive analysis and, and understand what the the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, the threats that your competitors have uh, is tremendously important because not only does it allow you to take those things that they're doing well, but to innovate on those things so you can do them better and to eliminate yeah. those pieces that are going to be a threat to you or a threat to your your organization. So it, it's tremendously important to to run those pieces. And this is where I'm talking about one of the reasons why I wrote this book is because a lot of people don't think about that as part of a, a UX design skill set. Um, we, we, we get very caught up in the visual, but there's so much more to it. And that usability yeah. testing piece can be so much fun um, <laughs> when you're when you're running through it. And so can those competitive analysis pieces. Uh, they can be just a, a great time. It feels like in tech, things are constantly getting easier. So mm -hmm. think about how easy it is now to browse the web on, say, an iPad, um, where 20 years ago, you'd, you know, you need to go and get an AOL CD or whatever, and you'd have to <laughs> <laughs> work out how your modem works and delve into some settings and get everything working. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think in that regard, you know, UX for most things has got better generally over over time. Right. Um, but But are we shielding users from what's going on underneath sometimes, you know, is, is, is that a negative consequence of better UX? So, uh, and, and what I'm thinking here is, you know, do we have a generation of children who will maybe find it harder to become say software engineers? Because, you know, I, when I grew up, I, I, I had a, a computer with a keyboard and a mouse and it just felt like a natural progression to, 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 to use that for, for more creative endeavors. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, kids today, they may only ever use a touch interface. So, so is that a, a negative consequence of better UX? You know, are, the, are we shielding things from people by 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 making it better, basically? Maybe. Um, and it's funny you mentioned AOL because my mom still has an AOL email address um, <laughs> that she still uses uh, consistently. Um, maybe we're, we're we're shielding some some folks there, but I don't know that we're necessarily. I don't know that we're necessar uh, necessarily necessarily shielding them from the career aspect of it or the creativity aspect of it. I think that the way that we interact with technology has changed drastically. Um, and mm -hmm. even, you know, I'm not that particularly old yet, despite the balding hair and graying beard. Don't believe your, <laughs> don't believe your eyes. But, uh, you know, even in my lifetime, you know, I, I grew up, my first computer was a Commodore 64, right? I mean, it was ancient. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, compare that to the, the things we have even on my wrist with my Apple watch. And there's, there's no comparison between those. Um, yeah, the, the ability to do more with technology, I think is, is leading us to opportunities to interact with technology in ways that are unique and novel and no generation before has ever had. So I have a son, Henry, four years old, great little kid, love him to death. He is so interested in building things. And we think about, Okay, 20 years ago when I was growing up, if I wanted to build something, what I have? Lincoln Logs, I had, <laughs> you know, may maybe some Legos. My parents weren't particularly well yeah. off, so I didn't have a, a whole lot. Um, whereas nowadays, you know, Henry and I are looking through um, Thingiverse and finding 3D printing projects to do together. And I'm walking him through to say, okay, well, this is what it looks like when we pull it up on the computer. We can rotate it around. We say, how do we want to change this? How do we want to use this? What's our What's our goal for it? Think about it from a design perspective and then send it to my little 3D buddy over here and, and print it out in just a few hours. And we go from having this idea of something that we wanted to do and something that we wanted to create to actually having that physical thing in our hands, which is 
a truly magical experience. So I don't think that it, it, it limits things. I think it, it does need to be taught differently. Um, I think when, yeah. when we were growing up, right, it, there was a lot of concentration on rote knowledge, right? You, you had to remember things because looking things up wasn't easy, right? The, the even yeah, for yeah. me yeah. growing up through school, I, you know, I remember using Alta Vista for the first time. It being mind blowing that you could find a lot of things out there <laughs> on the internet. That, that, yeah. that before you, you know, if you had a question, you'd be you just have to wait to find somebody that knew the answer, or you'd have to go out of your way to go to the library or pray the Encyclopedia Britannica had it. Um, that's not the case anymore. What 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 needs to be taught now isn't that rote knowledge that you need to remember exactly how to do things. Because that's not important anymore. What is important is the ability to be able to find those pieces that you need when you need them and apply them appropriately. So you need to understand how to research things. You need to understand critical thinking, critical reading, vetting your sources. Yeah. You need to understand the, the concept of trial and error, right, in the scientific process as it applies to whatever problem it is that you're trying to solve. Um, and that's a, a very different yeah. approach to education that is going to be really important for um, a lot of folks uh, who are younger and, and still coming up that, that want to be as effective as they can um, in sort of the STEM careers and giving them opportunities to pursue those. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, a Google or watching a video on YouTube, there's so many skills that you can pick up in, in a few minutes. You know, you can, if you need to do something, you can usually find it and do it, but it's, <laughs> you know, having the skill to, to know where to look and yeah. Absolutely. I would not be here talking to you today unless a lot of people have put together a lot of those things that I've looked up on YouTube. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my entirety of my Photoshop visual design knowledge is gathered from various sources around the internet, various YouTube tutorials. And that's one of the reasons why I love to give back. And writing this book wasn't so much about I want to write a book for my own ego. It wasn't so much about making a profit because I'm decidedly not at this point and I don't particularly care about that. It's about doing something for the community and giving back to the community that has given so much to me and has opened so many doors for me and has allowed me to, to be as successful as I am. I want to open those doors for other people and help them get into this world if I can do anything with that. Um, so hopefully this book uh, is, a, is a great source of, of information for people that are looking to get in here and want to know sort of the basic, what is everything? Where, where, where's all the furniture in the room, right? How can I find my way around the house? <laughs> <laughs> Come on in, the door's open. <laughs> I think that's a really good way of describing it. Uh, that is exactly what I got from it when I read it. And um, yeah, I, I think it does exactly that. Talking about uh, YouTube, in one of our recent episodes, we talked about a perceived decline in UX. So yes. it was our feeling that maybe, or probably mine more than David's, that maybe 10 years ago, there was a huge movement towards improving UX in digital products. And there was a real focus on doing what was right for the user. And nowadays, to me, at least, it feels like things have moved a little bit more towards maybe exploitation of users. Um, yeah. And I'm thinking platforms like YouTube and Facebook that have great UX, but with a, an aim of keeping people engaged on the platform, even if that's not in the best interest of the user. Yeah. So do you think there's truth in that or am I just getting old? No. <laughs> I mean, I can't say, I can't say about the you getting old part, but, but you're not up to me yet. Um, <laughs> I, I think that there is um, a, a modicum of truth there. And I think that the culture of fast results, fast delivery that has taken over, particularly with the agile 
development process lends itself a bit to that. For for one thing, you have, uh, of course, the developers that are trying to get things out the door as quickly as possible. Design does not work that way. Uh, I am a, a firm believer that you need to have the appropriate amount of time to do the research to, in order to create a good solid design that is going to be ethical, accessible, that's going to be usable, and it's going to meet all the needs of your users while still providing a great amount of value for your business. That does not fit within the agile process of releases every two weeks or you know weekly releases, monthly releases, whatever it might be. That cycle is just so focused on delivering things quickly, getting things out the door. UX just, just doesn't have that. You need to have a few months of leeway for any any sizable project, right? And and even for small pieces, it still takes at least a few weeks to, to go through some of the smaller things that don't require a lot of research and don't require a lot of design. And the, the tolerance for that just isn't there, um, except for in companies that are large enough and have um, developed enough systems uh, over the course of years to to have had that focus. And that's why Facebook and YouTube, in some respects, can still deliver those pieces and deliver some good quality UX. On the other side of things though, you have stakeholders that are accountable for certain numbers. And maybe those are the success metrics that we've talked about, right? And yeah. the the temptation is, are we going to put something out now, right? Um, that's going to move that needle. I don't care if it's accessible. I don't care if it's ethical. I just care about moving that needle. And when there's not yeah. that 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 leeway to have the user experience designed to say, no, we need to focus on the user. We can still move that needle in the right way. The temptation is to say, I'm going to move this needle at any cost and to do things that are traditionally referred to as dark patterns. I'm using deceptive designs. I don't think dark is a is is a bad thing. I like I like the dark. I like to sleep in the dark, but um, <laughs> <to use> the... <laughs> I, I've... I like that. I've I've been trying to adopt it myself. It's hard to change a lifetime of calling it a dark pattern. I think deceptive design is is a better term. Absolutely. And and I have a YouTube series on dark patterns that I need to go back and record because it's called dark patterns. And, <laughs> and I need to need to go back and re-record that. But that's going to take a significant amount of time. But but yeah, I mean, when you're when you're trying to move those needles and you're not you're not moving them in the right direction. You, again, that that quick delivery, people are just so focused on the what can you do for me now? You need to have mm -hmm. companies that have that longer focus, that longer time frame. Um, and that's where the argument of do we focus on the here and now or do we focus on the longer term results uh, comes in. And tech uh, as a whole, because of the speed that the that the industry moves as a whole, is focused on yeah. the here and now. And that needs to change if there's going to be a positive uptick again in user experience design. So t talking about deceptive design, what are some of the worst examples you've seen in your career? Well, <laughs> um, I mean, it's hard, hard to pick just one, right? Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few that I really, really hate. The one that bothers me the most is YouTube always asking me whether or not I'll sign up for YouTube Premium or YouTube Music. And they keep asking me. There's no way to say, leave me alone forever. It's just, oh, not now. Yeah. Or yeah, I'll sign up, right? That That's nagging, right? That's a classic example of... Yeah. You know, I'm going to nag someone to death until they say yes, right? And eventually, if I ask enough times, 
um, they'll say yes. Maybe romantic movies have trained us into that being a thing, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just till you beat them down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you just keep going, it'll be fine. I, I just finished watching, you know, How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days, and I'm just going to keep at it, right? You know, that's, that's YouTube's approach to it. Um, so yeah, that that nagging pattern drives me insane. <laughs> that's that's actually the reason, though. I I uninstalled the Amazon app. Um, I don't know if the US one's the same, the UK Amazon app. I am not a Prime member, but every time I'd go to, uh, I'd open the app, it would give me a pop-up saying, become an Amazon Prime member. And the, oh. the, the primary CTA would be yes. And that would basically just debit your card straight away for the Prime membership. It was, it was mm-hmm. one click, essentially. And that popped up every time I opened the app. And, and I used to dismiss it every time until one day, for whatever reason, I was distracted. I opened the app and I just hit the primary CTA without realizing and it char- it built my card and I got the money back, right? I wrote, I had to talk to Amazon support and they refunded the money. But the fact that that's even a thing, I just, nah, I just uninstalled it. I cannot blame you at all. I cannot. And, and Amazon is a particularly bad offender of what they call the Roach Motel design. Make it really easy to get into a situation and really difficult to get out of. Your example there is perfect, yeah. right? They made it so easy. Yeah. Say just one click, right? Just And that's all that you need to sign up for Amazon Prime. But uh, if you decided, oh, this is something I didn't want to do, I did that in error, you can't just go and make another click, right? Which is really, there's no technical reason why you should have to call and talk to somebody at Amazon to say, no, this was a mistake. I don't want to do this. They're making it difficult. They're they're relying on people's frustration tolerance to be low enough to say, you know what? It's fine. It's not that much money. Or I've been thinking about doing this for a while. I'll just stick with it. And it probably works. It probably did help move that needle of, Amazon Prime membership, right? And in your case, I'd say kudos to you for having the um, the mental fortitude to go through that <laughs> because so, so many people don't, and I I, I certainly don't. Um, so it's I just find it shocking that there was no there was no confirmation button. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, it wasn't are you sure? There was no undo button. Nothing. It's just open the app, one pop up, and one click, and that's it. You've signed up. Oh, man. I would find that shocking for anybody but Amazon. So <laughs> I say that. Yeah. I don't know if I've yeah. been an Amazon Prime member for a long time. Um, so I don't know if that's so you, still you working that way. So you won't see the pop-up then? <laughs> yeah, I don't see the pop-up. Um, but uh, I, I can tell you this. I, in the class that I teach on Deceitful Design, I have a, an hour and a half class that I do. It's on YouTube. You can find it there. Again, Doug Collins UX, my YouTube channel, if you want to go and look through that. And, and uh, we'll be re-uploading videos on that soon. But I also teach that class in person, right? So you can go and look through this. But one of the examples that I give is signing up for an Amazon account and then deleting an Amazon account and looking at the time difference between those two and the process difference to do those two. Uh, when you sign up for an Amazon account, it's very easy, right? It's your, it's your standard sign-up process. Give me your uh, essentially username. Give me your email address, right? Give me your password. That's all you need. Yeah. That's that's all you have to do to sign up. If you decide, I don't want an Amazon account anymore. This isn't Prime membership. This is saying, I don't want my Amazon account. I want to get rid of it. Right? There's no yeah. place you can go on Amazon's website that's delete account, disable account, anything like that. You have to go through a very specific sort of submenu within the settings. And then first, it is going to direct you to a chat bot. And then after you've talked to that chat bot and convinced it that you want to close your account, it's going to direct that chat bot so you can t- chat with a person online. And after you've chatted with that person online, Amazon sends you an email that says, are you sure you want to close your account? You have to click on a link in that email, say, yes, I want to close my account. And then 
they say, we will close your account within, I think it's 48 hours, right? And if you are persistent with the person, if you've kept them online while you're chatting to make sure that you get that email and you you ask them specifically for that piece, um, I think the, the fastest we managed to do that in was, it was either 12 minutes or 22 minutes compared to 34 seconds to sign up. So orders yeah. of magnitude, more effort, more time to remove your Amazon account. And that is intentional, right? They don't want it to be as easy for you to remove your account as it is to create it. From a business perspective, again, understandable. From a user experience perspective, absolutely unacceptable, absolutely deceptive design. And it drives me crazy that we have to deal yeah. with these large tech companies that are so good in some ways and so terrible in others. Yeah, I think I think it's UX as long as it suits their motives, right? Excellent Absolutely. UX in, in, every, in every way when it suits them and uh, <laughs> terrible UX when it doesn't. Come into my spider web. <laughs> yeah, we, we've laid the flies here very, very well. I don't know, you're not attracting other flies with flies. I don't know. We've laid the trap very well. <laughs> yeah, it, it drives me nuts. We shouldn't have to deal with that. But But part of winning that battle in the long run is having good UX design professionals that are versed in ethical design that understand the principles of ethical design who can stand up for the users and say, no, we're not going to, we're, I'm not going to sign off on this design. I'm not going to sign off on this process. You know, in some companies that may or may not make a difference, but you have to have people that are knowledgeable enough and willing to do that. And that's a, it's a very hard line, both to gain that knowledge, but then also to gain the, the oomph of this is something I feel comfortable doing within my organization because you may not. The, the practical implications of, of saying no in that situation can be professionally very difficult and from an interpersonal level too, also very difficult if you get along well with or, or know the person who's, who's making that decision well. It can be hard to say no. It's a, it's a skill that maybe isn't talked enough about in the UX world is, is the, the knowledge of, of when to push back and, and how to do it appropriately. 100% agree. It's yeah. not easy to, especially especially if there's more than one stakeholder who is trying to push the business forwards and knows that this is going to move the needle from a business point of view, but you know it's maybe unethical. It's a very right. difficult position to be put into where yeah, you, you yeah, are absolutely. literally, your, your income, you are being paid by a business. So you feel obliged to do what they're asking you to do, but you know it's unethical. And you know you're going to be put yourself on somebody's bad side, which nobody wants, right? Nobody wants, you spend... Yeah. Even though most of us, you know, for the last two years have been working from home, right? We still spend most of our day talking to these people, interacting with these people. They have more control over our life and our experience of our life than sometimes even the people we live with. You don't want to get on these these people's bad side from a, a personal perspective either, because you don't want that work experience to be difficult. But sometimes you have to be comfortable with, with difficult, because if you yeah. aren't, then the impact is more than just you, right? And, and that's what I think <laughs> makes user experience so special is the impact that we have on our users and, and, and on the people as a whole, both from a, a user perspective and a, and a business perspective, making sure that we're Guiding those those principles and um, and design directions in the right in the right place. Okay, so I've just got a, a few little quick fire questions for you. Yes, let's go. Uh, Mac or Windows? Uh, so I've got my I've got my first ever Mac right here. Um, I have gone fully Mac, uh, which has been an interesting experience. So Mac, what's the best UX you've had recently? Um, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna punt on this and say it's one is one I'm designing myself. I love building little Duplo toys for uh for my kids. I've been playing with Duplo with Henry since gosh he was born duplo are like kind of like bigger versions of legos they're the 
like the, the mm-hmm. two or three year old and having a 3d printer and being able to design and build things on it and use it quickly has been tremendous. Um, I just got this, uh, it's a flash forge 3d printer. They don't sponsor me or anything like that. It was just, it was a good price <laughs> and I, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I liked it. Um, and you know, the build plate isn't big. It's, it's six inches by six inches, but whatever I want to create, whatever I want to manifest, I can just go in to Tinkercad and create and it, it spits it out on here right away. So it's got to be my 3D printer because it it just works. It was easy to set up. It runs well and uh, allows me to do those things I want to do. Uh, so cats or dogs? Oh, I had a dog when I was a kid that I loved. Her name was Sheba. She was a little tiny thing and she was great. And then I had a cat when I got older um, that uh, attacked me and my wife like three days before we were supposed to have Henry. Uh, so wow. uh, life experience would probably lead me to say dog. Um, where I am right now, I'd be more likely to get a cat and just hope that it's not as crazy as the last one that I got. <laughs> Uh, okay, so what's your favorite input element and why? Mm, what's the left field? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's you know you know what I'm a big fan is is I'm a big fan of the searchable multi-select drop-down. That okay, uh, yeah. so if you have a you know a thousand different items in a list, but you can search for them, it will it will propagate those all and then allow you to click it um, and select sort of each one as sort of a checkbox style within that drop-down. I love that because it solves so many problems for larger data sets and it makes a lot of developers happy when you can do that and not have to have them do five different elements or five different filters to try and get through to something so i like making my dev friends happy um so usually if i can pull that out of the box and show it to them it it will make them smile a little bit and the last one of the quick fire questions so in your book it says that you are a bit of a uh, a part-time chef. So what's yes. uh, what's your favorite thing to cook? Oh man. So if I'm cooking for my family, probably my favorite thing to cook for them is we do flat iron steak with roasted potatoes and green beans because I know everybody nice. in my family loves that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easy. That sounds it's good. Just, that sounds oh, really it, good. It's 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 great. Um it's 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 great on so many levels. It tastes great. The steak isn't that expensive comparatively for for steak, right? You're not paying forty dollars in steak for the family. You're paying fifteen, right? The green beans are easy to do. They're easy to make, delicious. The roasted potatoes take no time or effort. The steak cooks up quickly, so I can cook that from start to finish in thirty minutes and have it be just delicious and 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 the way I want it to be. So when I'm cooking for my family, that's that. When I'm cooking for just myself, I love to make homemade pasta and meatballs. So I love to make my own noodles. I love to make make my own sauce. I love to make my own meatballs and really spend the time to do all those different elements because there's so much that's involved with each one and getting them just right that when it all works out well and you end up with that dish that is just uh, amazing, it's so rewarding. But I don't get a chance to do that very often because it's very rare that I'm cooking for just myself. I'm usually cooking for somebody else. And uh, if I'm cooking for you, it means I like you. So... Um, it's my way of <laughs> it's my way of loving people is to cook for them. You're making me really hungry. It's uh, <laughs> as, as we record this, it's like what is it like seven o'clock here? So I'm going to go yeah. ahead and get some dinner after this. Hopefully, it's a bit more than freezer beige. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what night is it. What night is it? Like freezer beige is Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, that's no, Thursday. You're fine, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah, just to close things off, what's next for you? Are you going to write another book? So it's um it's an interesting. T- 
time for me in my life right now. I have uh, been recently diagnosed with adult ADHD, um, which has been around with me. I can tell now that I'm I'm looking more into it more for really my entire life and just hasn't been caught until literally two weeks ago um, when I was putting out this book. And that's one of the reasons, thank you, by the way, for, for helping me edit this book a little bit. That's one of the reasons why there's so many typos in it. Is I was just trying to get the book done and it was a huge struggle just to get that book out the door and to write 20,000 words and, and get them in a, as Douglas Adams would say, put 20,000 words in a cunning order um, was, was uh, a, a huge challenge for me struggling through that that sort of ADHD. And, and I'm taking some time now to think about what my next piece is going to be, um, particularly now that I'm sort of understanding my limitations and understanding my capabilities getting some medication, try and get some of that under control and, and, and try and move in a, a good direction. For me, I, I definitely want to write uh, another book. It may be a second edition of this um, that expands out some of these ideas a little bit more or adds in a, a, a few pieces or a few different thoughts uh, from different people. Um, I've always wanted to write a book and have actually started a book about deceptive design. I know I wouldn't be the first one out there to to have written that. I've uh, always wanted to write my own book about fictional user interfaces. There's the great book that's already out there that, that talks about fictional user interfaces and some of their advantages and disadvantages. So when you say fic fictional user interfaces, can you expand on that? Because I'm not sure I know what a fictional user interface is. Minority Report, for instance. Um, ah, okay. Something that doesn't really exist, but you see it in the movies. Right, right. Yeah, even like the, the Starship enterprise in uh the the next generation i think that somebody somewhere said that and i have no idea if this is correct so star trek you don't have to tweet tweeted me about this but <laughs> i think somebody said that there was like the the whole enterprise had a four terabyte memory system to it and that was it and you think about that you know in, in the late 80s early 90s when the show was being created you go wow that's a ton of memory now you go kind of go that's that's a little <laughs> that's a little slip for, for what I'd expect, right? So yeah. um, you know, even things that are like that, you know, the amount of memory involved, you know, the interactions within those systems, it, it's fun to look through at the different sort of stabs people have taken at, at user interface design, and also the people that work. There are people that have jobs who their only role is to create user interfaces and user experiences that are used as fictional user interfaces within movies, within TV, that sort of thing. There are studios that specialize in that which make me tremendously jealous because I'd love to do that. But uh, you, you mean like crime dramas when they go zoom, zoom, zoom on the fuzzy footage <laughs> and they can just infinitely zoom in and, and get whatever detail they yes, need? Yes, yes. There's somebody that's designed that interface whose job it is, they work at a studio that only makes interfaces for movie companies, TV distribution companies. So they design, mm -hmm. how is that going to look? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the zoom button here and I don't care that it's technically impossible. I don't care about reality. I just care about what the director wants. So... Okay, how am I going to make this look like it's something that's feasible? How am I going to make it look like something that's interesting, right? And yeah. it's it's a it's a tremendous it's a tremendous job to be able to to work on something like that. I, I want to have a job like that. So, but the thing is, this is the part about ADHD that is so hard to deal with is that you have all of these wonderful creative <clears throat> ideas about things that you'd like to do, things that you'd like to create. Um, and there's just no possible way I can get through my brain and do everything that I want to do because even now I'm thinking about. That reminds me of one of my first projects I started was all the different niches in UX design that you could work in. You could work in for that movie studio. You can work in finance. You can work in gaming. You can work in adult entertainment. And all of those have their own 
little unique perspective to them and unique skill sets and unique processes yeah. that that aren't talked about that are, are are limited to just those so i'd love to write that and the thing is i have no idea of what i'm going to write next because <laughs> i have a, <laughs> i have all of these ideas floating around in my distracted brain so i'm taking some time to prioritize them but if anybody out there has ideas of what they'd like to see from me out of either of those things i've listed or even something that i've touched on in the past that you'd like to know more Reach out. Let me know. Send me a send me a, a tweet again at Doug Collins UX. You can send me an email, Doug at DenverUXer.com. You can go to DenverUXer.com, my website. Find my contact information there. All my social links. You can find me on LinkedIn, whatever. Snapchat. Nobody snaps me, but um, yeah, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you can find me just about anywhere there, and uh, send me a message. I'll send you a Snapchat, Doug. Yes. I'll, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll be the one that does it. <laughs> Nobody in their late thirties uses Snapchat, so I'm there. All my friends are just okay. Yeah, yeah. I would have to install it first, but I will install it and I will send you one, and then I and then I will uninstall it afterwards. <laughs> I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to take a screenshot of that just to prove that I actually got a Snapchat. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that that's everything I had for you, Doug. Awesome. Uh, I really thank you for taking the time out to talk to us, sharing all those thoughts with us. And that's it. All thank right. you. Hey, well, thanks for having me on, and please send my uh, warm regards on to your compatriot as well. And uh, next time we do this, let's all three try and get together and see if we can see if we can all have a chat really much appreciated um i I can't tell you and and just the chance to talk with you guys beyond the podcast and get to uh have an actual conversation with you has been something i'm looking forward to for a long time so thanks very much for for roping me in I, i really appreciate the help no thank you okay successful interview andrew well done. Very interesting. Doug's a Doug's yeah. a nice guy, isn't he? Very much so. Very much so. I am super glad that he took the time out to uh, to spend with me to answer my questions. We now know what his favourite input element is. <laughs> very important uh, to, to to find that out. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I liked that uh, in the space of half an hour or whatever, he talked about. He mentioned Commodore sixty four, Douglas Adams, Starship Enterprise. And, um, oh, and he mentioned your favorite food, freezer beige. Yeah. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he did. Do you need to explain to the people listening what, what freezer beige is? Well, if you're a loyal listener, you should know. Oh, I think, it? I think that's just, you know, if you don't know, then, uh, where, where have you been? Well, I can't remember talking about it, to be honest, but I suppose <laughs> you, can, you can sort of figure it out, can't you? It's terrible. Like frozen food that's beige in colour, right? That's easy to <laughs> easy to cook. Like I don't know, oven chips, oven fish, oven chicken nuggets, anything like that. Freezer beige. Fish fingers. Bird's eye potato waffles. What, what about those little miniature spring rolls? Right, right. That's freezer beige. Let's not mention. Let's talk about what we're actually supposed to be talking about, rather than getting on some sort of weird beige tangent. You asked me. You. I, I, I don't want to talk about it. This is, your, <laughs> this is on you. This is on, this is totally on you. Right, do you want to hear about our latest Twitter followers? I certainly do. Okay, we have Mario Vasquez. You oh, you're waiting for me, aren't you? Oh, sorry. I, no, I, I just thought you, I just expected that you were going to say something weird in uh, in a terrible accent. I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Okay, I will. I will do. So, Mario Vasquez. Hello, Patrick. Ooh. Patrick Gregoire. Hello, Jessica Cameron. Hello, Sophie Beaumont. Hello, and Nadika. Alpha Corolla. Hello. Hello, everyone. Yeah, welcome. It's nice to have you with us. Three, two, one. Bad usability night. <laughs> Stop 
cockpit with the sound effects. <laughs> oh, I enjoyed that. Giving you access right, to on. the sound effects is the worst thing that I've done. Right. Three, two, one. Bad usability, Bad usability nightmares. Okay, so the, the, something happened to me. This was like this was last week. Uh, it yep. was like three in the morning, completely dark. Wow, I was okay. asleep. I was in bed and I heard a noise. Okay, it was oh, a, a scary noise. A scary noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something unusual. Something. Um, so, so you you were asleep. I was completely asleep. I was just I was sock on, and this this noise woke you're, me up. But you're what? What? Sorry, so, I was sock on. You know, so what the hell does sock on mean? If someone's asleep, they're like sock on. You not heard that before? They are sock on. Have you just made that up? Why socks? What have socks got to do with it? No, no, the, like you sock on. Let me Google this. Sock on. Oh no, it's just pe- just pictures of people with socks on. That's what I tell my my kids to do. Get your socks on. Come on, we're going out. Right. Well, I was asleep. Okay, and I heard a noise. It was a weird noise. It woke me up. It woke my wife up. Woke the cat up. The cat was like bolt upright like terrified of what this thing was. And uh, so I went to find out what it was and it was the the printer. Okay. So the printer in my spare room is just been going off in the middle of the night. Okay. And like, why? Why would that happen? There's there's no one's connected to it. No one's sent anything to print. I've not used it during the day. So like it's not been buffering for eight hours or whatever. Okay. And I was just thinking, why is the printer going? Has someone maybe like hacked my Wi-Fi network and, and used it to send something weird to the printer. I was like, I just couldn't work out why the printer would suddenly start working. That is a great way to mess with someone, isn't it? If you could break into their Wi-Fi network and start <laughs> printing out things like when they were least expecting it, like little little ransom note. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember doing that at school, like uh, using a school computer and then connecting to a printer that was in a different classroom and just printing something out just to see. Just because, <laughs> because you don't know what kind of reaction somebody's going to have. <laughs> oh, that, that reminds me of a, of a little tangential story. I'll briefly tell you this. So when I was at school, someone wanted to make themselves a fake ID so that they could go and buy alcohol in a bar. Right, okay. And they decided they were going to get a better quality fake ID if they used the school laser printer to, to make it with. Right. And so they bought some yeah. nice glossy paper and put it in the printer. They're going to a lot of effort then, yeah? Yeah, they'd sent, sent their their fake ID to print. Now, what they failed to do was buy gloss paper that was suitable for a laser. And so this gloss paper melted as it went through the, the <laughs> heat of the laser printer. And it broke the laser printer. They had to replace a really expensive part. Oh, no. But the great thing is, because they were wondering, you know, who's done this? Who's put this paper in there and who's done it? And, and lo and behold, there was a half-printed fake id with the person's face on it <laughs> stuck in the laser printer <laughs> so they got they got roundly in in a lot of trouble for that anyway back to your story sorry your printer came on in the middle okay. of the night so the printers the printer start it's printing it's not just like it's not warming up it's actually printing something and i was like what i was just waiting printing what exactly what is it printing what is it, what is coming out of this print printer at 3 a.m. that nobody's sent. Is it like a ghost? Is, is a ghost communicating to me? Is it going to be something like order a new cartridge or something? <laughs> <laughs> is that what it's going it to be? Was. Right, okay. I've got, I've got the print. I've got it right here. Okay. I've got it right here. Now, people won't be able to see this because it's an audio podcast. It was a printer update. It was a firmware update. And it was it, it printed out saying printer updates completed. A printer update had been automatically installed 
in the printer. Uh, so yeah, so this is a HP printer, by the way. So it's done a firmware update and decided at 3 a.m. To, to print out a, pe- a piece of paper telling me that it's done a done an up- update. Very, very annoying. So I've got mixed feelings about this because I feel like... Okay, so I, I get annoyed with things that update during the day when I want to use them. Absolutely. So the fact that it took it upon itself to update at 3 a.m., when you definitely weren't using it, I think that's I think that's to be commended. I think that's a good thing. Oh, so it's it's better than during the working day, I suppose. Yeah, but my question is, why did it need to waste ink and paper? Why is that the only communication mechanism it had to let you know that it had done that? That's a good point. I suppose it's just doing what it knows best. <laughs> it's, the, it's all it knows. <laughs> it's all it knows. <laughs> There's two sheets as well. Why is it wasting your paper? That's not. It shouldn't have the right to waste your paper and ink. Yeah. Didn't even do it double-sided. Couldn't it have sent you an email or... Maybe. I don't know. Does it have a screen on it? Couldn't the screen yeah. have said, like, No, something? I don't think this one has a screen. Wait, I'm not sure. No. It's not a big printer. It's a, it's a small home printer. It's not a, It's not a, a, an office one. Um, okay. So it doesn't have a screen. So maybe that was the only way that it could do it. But yeah, it could have sent an email. How frequently does it do that? Because... It's never done it before. That I know Okay, of. That's, that's a good thing because... I don't want to be woken up again. No. Well, I was going to say, imagine imagine how much paper it could, you know, if it did a weekly update, imagine how much paper and ink it would waste. <laughs> yeah, that would be, that would be too much. Yeah. Very I mean, that's one of those things that they, if they want to be really evil, they could uh, schedule lots of small updates to happen weekly and then see their cartridge sales go through the roof. That's a good point. Yeah. Like maybe white text on a black background just to use up the most black possible. <laughs> just so that you have to buy the <laughs> buy the black ink. I mean, it did do parts of it were in colour. The HP uh, logo is in blue. So it's not just using one colour. What else is it using? Uh, it's mostly black and blue. Although to be honest, it did highlight that we do need to change the colour cartridge. Is it, is it just got one colour cartridge? So even though you've got plenty of... I don't know. I, okay. I try not to use the, the printer, if I'm honest, because I absolutely hate printers for, for this reason and many others, which is just the frustration to get it working. Yeah, there's that, there's that classic oatmeal comic, isn't it? Why, what's that? The, so the oatmeal, the cartoonist, Yeah. There's a, there's a cartoon that he did on printers. It's like why, why printers were sell, sent from hell or something like that. Have you seen that? No, no. Uh, I'm pretty sure that you're going to really ruin it by describing it in, in depth detail and re- removing all comedy from it. Right. <laughs> no, I think what we'll let's, do is we'll just... Let's let's put a link in the podcast notes and if anyone wants to go and have a look at it, it's quite funny. Great stuff. Right. Just a quick reminder, if you are interested in Doug's book, you can grab a discounted copy at denveruxa.com forward slash unusable. Uh, we'll leave that link in the show notes so you can find it easily. So that is the end of the podcast. If you've seen or used something unusable recently, we want to hear about it. You can email us at podcast at com. And we're on Twitter at Unusable Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, there's plenty more. The last episode we talked about is gamification evil. And on YouTube, we've got a video called What If Your Shower Was a Website? We also have Unusable t-shirts and hoodies available to buy on the website, podcast.theunusable.com. Music is by Gold5472. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll get a notification about the next one. And that's it. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye.